all of us need to understand how to manage all of this health information that's coming our way. Not from a paternalistic perspective, but how do we design this process so people are more informed, stay engaged, stay curious, and can make better healthcare decisions. Hello, everyone. This is Bon Koo, and welcome to another episode of Design Lab. One of the questions that we like to ask on the show is, how might we design healthier lives? And we have a perfect guest to answer that question. Her name is Liz Salmi. She is the Senior Strategist of Dissemination for Open Notes at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Liz helps hospitals and health systems understand the changing nature of patient-clinician communication in the digital age. She is a driving force in the Open Notes movement. Liz has a background in traditional and digital communications, design, and community organizing. She is passionate about helping regular people become more engaged in their own healthcare by improving their experience as patients. She was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor at age 29, and she put her digital communication skills immediately to use by blogging, chronicling her daily symptoms, and seeing how much she could learn from her online patient portal. Her research areas of interest include studying how healthcare professionals and patients are connecting through digital tools and joining as partners in research. Liz leads the Brain Cancer Quality of Life Collaborative. It's a group established in 2017 with funding from the Patient Center Outcomes Research Institute. She was named ePatient of the Year by the Society for Participatory Medicine. She's a member of the American Medical Informatics Association, a Stanford Medicine X ePatient Scholar, a TED Med Frontline Scholar, and serves on the National Brain Tumor Society Board of Directors. Her interests include clinical informatics, citizen science, and human-centered design. Thank you for giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts. This is really the best way for you as a listener to support this show. We love, love it. When you leave us comments on Apple Podcasts, I'm going to read one that we received on Saturday. It says, I have zero background in healthcare, but I love the show. It's so practical and good at sparking different ways of thinking about things. I often replay the episode as soon as I finish listening to it just to help concepts percolate more. That's from podcast listener 27. Thank you to those on Twitter who gave us a shout out at Amanda Working, at Stuck on SW, and at Anson J. Tong. We really appreciate that. Here's my conversation with Liz Salmi. Liz Salmi, welcome to Design Lab. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. So I read that you were a drummer in a punk rock band. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Uh, where do you begin with being a drummer in a punk rock band? Always liked music growing up was playing piano. I wanted to be in the band at school. You can't play piano in the school band. So somehow <laughs> I was convinced that piano is a percussion instrument because there are hammers inside the piano that hit strings. And I started playing drums in the school band. Eventually, of course, the drum set itself is even cooler than other parts of the marching band. And then I got in a band because every kid in school who plays guitar needs a drummer. And then it just went from there. And when most people start college after high school, I went on the road and I toured the country as the drummer in a punk rock band. My bandmates were a year or two older than me, so they were cooler than me in my mind. <laughs> and we played all over the place. And what's funny is just yesterday, 
a friend of mine who came to shows back in the day posted on YouTube uh, one of our last, one of my band's last big shows at a big concert hall. And she's right at the front of the stage. And I'm watching myself play drums at age 21, which is now 20 uh -huh. years ago. And I was so fast. And looking back, I'm like, I was an athlete as a drummer. I was just, <laughs> it was incredible. And I, I wonder how much that shaped my view of how I approach my work today. And I, I think it's a big influence on me. Amazing. Do you have a favorite punk rock band? I, I I won't name any one band. I'll I'll just say uh, uh, my my Spotify playlist when I'm running. Uh -huh. If I play any punk rock while running, I will run faster. <laughs> so that's my tip for everybody. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so yesterday you were quoted in NPR's Marketplace, and you said the pandemic overshadowed the biggest story in healthcare. What yeah. is that big story? The big story, the breaking news is as a result of the 21st Century Cures Act, which was passed by a bipartisan Congress in 2016, was one of the last things done in the Obama administration, went into effect yesterday to date this April 5th, 2021. And that means all people with electronic health records will have immediate access to their health records through digital means. So if a hospital or health system has an online patient portal and you've signed mm -hmm. up to your patient portal, you can log in as of that date and have access to everything in your record, including visit notes, things like your emergency department notes written by your the doctor who saw you. Oh no, written by me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wanted to shout you out. All those tests and lab results, many of us have seen over the years, but the delay should be much shorter. It should be easy access, uh, immediate access pathology reports, radiology reports, surgical reports, everything in your record you'll have easy access to. There are some exceptions, uh, some minor tweaks to take care of folks who are vulnerable, maybe adolescents, mm -hmm. hiding some information from parents and so on and so forth. But for the vast majority of us, 99% of us, it should be easy to have access to your records. And for culture, medicine, that's been a bit paternalistic in the past, this is yeah. going to be a big change, that full transparency and I'm curious and excited to see how this might change interactions between doctors and patients. Yeah, that's huge. And it's different from like current patient portals, right? Can you explain that difference of like how things, how access has been yeah. before Monday to what it might be in the future? Yeah. So this is where I want to warn you, I can get really nerdy here. <laughs> we, we, we're total nerds here. Yeah. And so for listeners who are either healthcare professionals or designers or patients or a mix of all the three, I will share that each hospital and health system is like its own ecosystem or environment. And those who work in healthcare probably understand that. And so the decisions about how an electronic health record is implemented and a patient portal is implemented are kind of different everywhere. So say I'm a patient at your hospital, the way the, those in health IT have decided to roll out the features in the patient portal might be different than at hospital B across the street. And so those decisions are made by usually medical professionals in the health IT team. And what you have access to through your patient portal will be somebody made the decision saying, we're going to give these folks a quick after visit summary after the visit that says how tall you are, how much you weigh mm -hmm. and what you're prescribed today. And we'll give them access to their lab results within two days. Mm -hmm. They might see a radiology report two weeks later. Mm -hmm. So the delay of access to information and what information you see has been decided by someone somewhere. And that's different around the country. But what we're going to see 
as of now is across the country, a uniform rollout of now everything. And that information should, you should as patients have near immediate access to that according to this federal policy and near immediate access is kind of yeah. interpreted slightly differently. It might be the moment a doctor signs off on a note and hits send, I'm done. It might be delayed by the end of the day, but you should have it real soon. So that means I don't have to fill out a fax anymore to get my medical <laughs> records? No, who knows? I feel bad for the whoever still does faxes around the country. They, they might still exist, but yeah. And there's this April 5th day, but yeah. retroactive access to things Different health systems are interpreting that in different ways. Folks who've been practicing in an open notes environment, which we can talk about later, going into the past, they're already sharing a lot of those visit notes and so forth. But everyone around the country must do it as of April 5th, 2021. It's amazing. I remember, I think a year ago, it was a Friday afternoon. I was rushing to get to my pediatrician's office because my kids were going away on camp. And then I said, I just need the immunization records. They're like, you're too late and you have to fill out this form and we might be able to get this to you on Monday. We'll try to fax this over to you on Monday. I'm like, they never called me. I was like this. I was like, so infuriated. I was like, I am a physician. (laughs) I can't even get access to the immunization records because I was like, why can't I just email you and you can get it? And it was so infuriating. And in this position of privilege where I'm a physician, my wife's a physician, my children are healthy, but even little things like that. So I can't imagine for patients with chronic diseases who are always in hospitals and clinics and who touch different systems of how this can be revolutionary for Mm -hmm. them. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the ability for people to collect their disparate health records across the country into one place, say through an app, which there's, we could go down the route of what's going to happen with tech developers and one's information leaves a HIPAA covered entity and is out in the wild west of these non HIPAA covered spaces. but, But for people to be able from the positive side of this, to be able to collect your disparate records from around the country, say you move across the country to be able to sync things up for you. If you're traveling and with your kids and you go to another state and somebody ends up in the hospital to be able to pull up on your device and say, here's the note from the last visit. Here's proof of X, Y, and Z of my history. That should be helpful. And for people like me, I'm a person living with cancer. I've been living with brain cancer for now 13 years. The capability for me to participate in a trial or research, whether it's just Mm. a quality of life trial or a future drug that's being tested on the market that makes sense for me to be able to easily take my full record and send it to that researcher, the Mm. folks who are conducting that trial, because I've been in the process of trying Mm. to participate in research and the researchers like fill out all these forms. You can't get any of that information on the online portal. Now you need to re-sign things. Can you fax it? Can, you know, oh man. So this will, you know, the whole point of the 21st Century Cures Act, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, was to accelerate research and mm. to make it easier for people to participate and share mm. the records. Well, there's so many directions I want to go. Let's finish <laughs> up this thread on electronic health records and because you have been working to make communication healthcare more transparent you've been designing ways to make it more transparent and through your work at open notes so can you talk about open notes and that work that you've done for those who may not know what it is yeah absolutely open notes so there's the way i describe it and the way the rest of my team might describe it so open notes is the name of a research project i think traditionally in research 
clinicians who get big grants, they call the grant like the Bangku lab or the, the Liz Salmi lab. They name it uh-huh. after themselves. Yeah. No offense to anyone who does that. Open Notes is essentially the name of a lab of researchers, but they gave it a cool name called Open Notes, uh, where they've been studying for the last 11, 12 years, the concept of what happens if you give patients access to their full visit notes, the, the doctor's note, the clinical note after the end of the visit. And usually this research has been done in ambulatory care settings, mm-hmm. primary care, but it's been spread throughout in oncology, dermatology, mental health, so on and so forth. So studying- be, be, There is this fear of that, right? Primarily by people like me, by physicians going, we're giving- patients access to our medical records. Yeah. We didn't think that was going to be good. Right. Well, and the note is this really important document for those of you who have not gone through your records like me, the note is captured. It's a history of gosh, where did I begin? The note is so cool. It's the most important part of a medical record. It's there to Uh, remind doctors and other medical professionals about a patient's condition and plan for treatment. And it's so detailed. It's the coolest thing ever. And it historically has not been available to individuals and patients, maybe because we used to do paper records back in the day and it wasn't physically possible, but now everything's electronic. So Mm -hmm. that really makes it easy to share this information. So researchers, open notes, decided to study this. And they were really the clinicians they got to they convinced to share these notes. They got 105 doctors to share the notes at three sites around the country for an entire year through these patient portals. Mm. And the doctors were really nervous. They're like, oh, I'm going to get so many more phone calls. My workload's going to increase. Patients will understand because I'm not writing for them. I'm writing in medical ease. And they got when 20,000 patients you know, of, of these doctors to read their notes for an entire mm. year. And a year later, they looked at the data and patients loved reading their notes. Doctors' workload did not increase. Patients felt like they better understood their care, trusted their doctors more, were more likely to do what their doctor said, aka be adherent or compliant because they were able to understand the doctor's thinking and reasoning. Mm. So that's back in the day that a big paper came out in 2011. They made big news about that. And, but that research has continued on and a hundred published studies later around, you know, primary care and all these other care settings show those results are repeated again and again. It didn't harm care. It didn't violate that trust between the doctor and the patient. No. Patients didn't get upset by what doctors wrote in the chart. No. And if, if you know, not everybody wants to read their note. My, mm-hmm. I talked to my mother-in-law. She's like, I don't want to read that. And I'm like, but what if you could read dad's note? She's like, oh, I want to read his note because she provides care for him. She's like, what happened? He doesn't tell me what happens. With his <laughs> but even if you don't want to read your own record, which you don't have to, no one's saying you have to read all this stuff. The fact that it's offered in there, survey after survey, 99% of people say, yes, I want to have the opportunity to access this information if I need it. And 99% of people don't agree about anything, but having access to their records if they need it is one of those things. What did you feel like on Monday when this announcement went out that patients can access all their medical records for free in a, in a timely manner? Did you like pop open a bottle of champagne and say, <laughs> I've been waiting for this day for so long? It's like months ago, I carved out the day in my calendar to like just not do any meetings, just kind of work on stuff just in case. And then literally... I opened my email, I'm eating my breakfast, reading my email on my phone. I don't know why I do that. And there was all these media requests from 
different organizations, people wanting to interview folks from our team or me. Like it was, it was, it was a, yesterday was really busy. That's all yeah, I, I could say. Yeah. And it was exciting. And then people are like, well, your mission is done, right? You guys have no work left. We're like, no, we have so much more work to do looking at this in a, whole, a variety of other ways. And so it's, we're exciting. We're like, okay, that is not done, but almost there. And then where do we take it from here? So I think uh, well, amazing. Congratulations. And thank you for being one of the leaders in this field for advocating for, for this. And I feel so badly when patients say, hey, can I have access to that uh, CAT scan or my lab results? Or, And if they're not in the portal, I like, I go, ah, for years I've been saying, well, go to medical records and probably yeah. you probably have to fill out a form and I guess they'll get it to you somehow. But at two o'clock in the morning oh, in the I emergency room, they can't. And so they yeah. would have to like return back to the hospital and right. patients would get frustrated. And I would say, Oh, what do you want me to do? <laughs> it's two right. o'clock. I gotta go see. And I, I felt badly because I could empathize with them. It's like, yeah, they want access. And especially if, if they were visiting Philadelphia and we're not from there, right. they wanted to take the information, what was done to them by me to their doctor. And I couldn't uh, provide yeah. that. And so so incredibly frustrating. So I, this is revolutionary and it's too bad the pandemic has overshadowed just how extraordinary this is. I mean, the pandemic is the most important story in healthcare right now, as it should be. And the, I guess the exciting thing we've been thinking about with the pandemic related to open notes over the last year is more people have been having telemedicine visits. Mm -hmm. And how much do we remember from a telemedicine visit? I don't know. Most people don't remember everything from their interaction with the doctor. And to people are now reading, folks who have access to their notes before April 5th, there are about 260 health systems that were practicing in open notes environment. So we've been hearing anecdotally from clinicians who are like, hey, my patients are reading their note after this telemedicine visit. This is so great. We're practicing in this new environment. Also been thinking about, you know, with, with people who have a loved one who's hospitalized in the past year, whether it's from COVID or something else, they can't see the person in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So folks who have proxy access to a patient portal, who can read uh, in real time what's happening for that to that person is very meaningful when you can't be right next to them. Every yeah. day. So that will be interesting. Oh, I, I didn't yeah. think about that application. So in researching about you, I did not know that you actually have a degree in graphic design. Mm -hmm. And I was curious to know what role has design played in your journey? Oh, it, everything. Wow. So I've, so we talked about the band Yeah. being a drummer in a punk rock band. And when you're being in a punk rock band is that whole DIY do it yourself experience. You're really this little commune of individuals where everyone takes on a responsibility to keep the band afloat. One person books the shows and another person deals with the merchandise and the t-shirt and your CDs for sale. And I took on a communications role where I, let's see, this was for me. So I'm dating myself. I was right out, right, right at the end of high school. So it was like 1997 through 2001 ish as the internet was becoming this big thing and people were getting online using AOL and the instant messenger uh -huh. and so forth. So I wanted to learn how to build websites and I took on the role of 
learning how to code HTML, CSS, so on and so forth, our band website, but also handled our mailing list, which was an email list back in the day. We used to wait, wait, you, you learned you learn how to code just for yeah. band communication? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and eventually that became my side gig. If we weren't traveling and doing shows, I would come home and every local business is like, we need a website. And I was like, I could program one for you. And they were crap websites, but you uh -huh. learn how early web was just like, GeoCities and yeah. <laughs> animated GIFs that were not good. And so I that became the work that I did on the side when I wasn't playing music. And in the world of design, it's your portfolio, the mm -hmm. work that you do, where you can say, I've done these projects is what gets you to the next thing. And it was less so about here's the degree I have from such and such a place. It was word of mouth. So that's eventually my career took me into different spaces where I became fascinated about how do you take really complicated things? I, I started working with engineers and architecture mm -hmm. firms like that, the transportation, the world of public works became mm -hmm. a niche for me. And I was really fascinated by taking really complicated things and making them easier to understand by the general public. Mm -hmm. And that was just who I was. And I stopped playing music, kept doing design and communications work. And then brain cancer happened and I decided to approach that in the same way, like dealing with something health-related, really complicated, that's cancer and neurology at the same time. I had a group of friends who and family who wanted to know what was going on with me. So my real instinctual response to all of that was build a website <laughs> and yeah. start communicating to the people who cared about me what was going on with me. And I, I knew a thing or two about search engine optimization. So everything I wrote was like, I should use certain key terms. I had just learned about the name of this chemotherapy drug. I will put that in my blog post. And over time, the first few years after diagnosis, I was able to see that people were finding this cheesy blog that I was writing because they were searching for people who were living with brain cancer and they were finding me. And that was pretty new at that time. This is about 10 years ago. People were not doing that. You started the yeah. blog post and you started being very transparent and open about your journey of living with a disease mm -hmm. and getting this shocking news. And I've looked through your blog. It's amazing. I, I've learned so much through it. It's what's the URL? Is it Liz Army? It's the LizArmy.com. Yeah thelizarmy.com. And thank you for that. And you just kind of built this community online. Is that right? It, it, well, so there's starting blogging in 2008, throughout 2009, 10, I finished treatment in 2011. So it was kind of this long expanded experience. And for whether it's talking about health or talking about fishing or being a mom or something like blogging was the thing of that mm, time. Yep. And then more of the social media platforms like Facebook was popping up and be expanding beyond universities and some of some um, businesses. And then, so there's Facebook and then Twitter. And so more of these pl platforms are popping up and a lot of the, the communities, the healthcare communities kind of transferred from long form blogging to yep. being on these social media spaces. So that was just the natural progression and, and so I, of course, as a, as a patient advocate and a voice out there also wanted to be in yeah. these other social spaces. So I really saw, and we still see this today, there's Facebook groups for patients and hashtag communities on Twitter for patients. And those hashtag communities spill over into the yeah. Instagrams and the TikToks. And there are patient advocates, patient groups, 
healthcare communities on all of these platforms. They all have their kind of different style and behavior. And because I've been part of it for so long, mm -hmm. I feel like this little like anthropologist who's grown, yeah. grown along with these and real and have been a participant in these different groups and have observed how they kind of work and mm -hmm. have these different dynamics with each other. So I wouldn't say I started all the communities, but I've partnered with many of yeah. the patient advocates in these communities to grow. And uh, I could, again, I could talk on and on, but we talked, you and I, right before recording, talked a bit about the Stanford Medicine X yep. community. And one I had, of the- I had Larry Chu on uh, a yes, few episodes ago. I heard, yeah. Yes. The executive director of uh, Medicine X. One of the things I love about Medicine X is that it, as a person living with brain cancer, I go to the brain cancer things. I go to the walk, I volunteer with the brain cancer and you're, you're stuck in the silo of a disease specific conversation. And that's not bad or good, but Medicine X is people everywhere. There's people with breast cancer, diabetes, various syndromes, undiagnosed mental health and being involved with Medicine X helped me realize that there was cool things going on what patients and advocates and clinicians are doing in other disease areas that could be applied back to brain cancer, or I could go beyond my diagnosis and work on other things such as transparency. And so it really opened my eyes to what is possible for advocates. That's amazing. And can you just give us the hashtag of one of the communities that you're involved with? Yeah. Uh, so I'm involved with hashtag BTSM, which stands for brain tumor, social media. A lot of the cancer communities have similar ontologies for their hashtag. So uh -huh. BCSM is breast cancer social media. BTSM was inspired by breast cancer social media. We totally stole their model and they said, good, go run with it. And since then, there's a lung cancer community, multiple myeloma, adolescent, young adult, pediatrics. I mean, there's so many great cancer specific hashtag communities. There's such vibrant communities I see online. I think Adam Hayden is, is mm -hmm. part of that one and yeah. a big fan of his. Because before you would have to physically go to a local meeting that's maybe held by academic medical center. Mm -hmm. And then it was very specific times like Tuesday at like 6 p.m. You have to physically drive there or walk there. And now I see the access is so greater and the barriers to entering to one of these communities have fallen, which is fantastic. Yeah. I, it's for, for me and one of the other like co-founders of BTSM, we found each other through Twitter and realized the breast cancer community was doing this way to aggregate their conversations and continue conversations asynchronously. Let's do the same thing in the brain tumor space. And that community has grown so much since we started our stuff in 2013 so much so we've actually done research with real researchers about the growth of btsm over time and what's been so fun to track is the number of researchers and clinicians you know neurosurgeons and neuro-oncologists and the journals and the, like the nih how they're also using the hashtag to get to patients to learn about patients' experiences and to share new research with patients mm. and patients respond, ask questions. So it's really, it, it, at least in our space, has flattened a lot of the hierarchies and bear, yeah. we get to know, I can say I know neuroradiation oncologists. I'm like, wow. And we learn from each other, which is pretty neato. I remember reading that you started going to some of these academic medical conferences that have been 
pretty much closed to patients. And then you're saying, Hey, I'm the only patient. I'm the only person with brain cancer here. You guys are all researchers and physicians talking about it. Can you tell us what inspired you to do that? And what the response was from people like me in my specialties? Yeah. Oh my God. There's so many ways to respond to that. Let's see here. So I've been dabbling, I'm not dabbling. I'm a researcher now. I need to own it. I need to like, de- you're, de- yeah, you are, a re- I mean, you've uh, published in, yes, you published that I, art. With, yeah. Um, with P- so PCORI, right? Patient Center yeah, Outcomes so, Research Institute. Yeah, I've been outside of my open notes work, which is like this research base. I, as a patient, a person linked with brain cancer, have partnered with other patients and care partners um, and clinicians and researchers now to do research around quality of life and brain tumors. And where we involve all the stakeholder perspectives to set a research agenda. Okay. So, and in that work, which is just getting the grant and being funded feels like I'm getting away with something. Like, do I belong here in this space? And it makes me think of playing music back in the day where as a musician, you know, other musicians and you go to someone else's show. They're, they're playing at the, the concert place down the street. You didn't buy a ticket, but you know the, the other band. So they sneak you in the back door because you're cool. Like <laughs> you're also in a band. So they sneak you in. And I feel like the last few years I've been like sneaking in backstage at the cool person shows. And in the research I did in the brain cancer quality of life space, uh-huh. along with Adam Hayden and others, we were working on a, a paper based off of some of the research we've done. One of the things I've now learned is when you're working on a paper, you sometimes submit a poster to an academic medical conference uh-huh. about your work, which is so funny to me. It makes me think of like elementary school when you have to do a science fair project and then you have that trifold thing and you put things on the trifold. It's exactly like that. It's 100% science fair. And then the point of the poster, and I'm recapping this because I knew you have such a diverse audience, but the point of the poster is one, it's good for your CV apparently, Uh, but two, you have an opportunity to talk about your research as people pass by and it's other people in your field. So you can kind of flesh out some ideas and the questions that you have. So we were working on a paper there was the Society for Neuro-Oncology, which is the big brain cancer conference. Yep. And I thought, let's submit a poster to the Society for Neuro-Oncology and see what happens. And nothing on the poster submission says, I am a patient. I, it's just submitted on its full merit. And the poster got accepted. So then I was like, how do I get to this conference? Because it <laughs> costs money. You have to pay yeah. the full price. So I knew people within National Brain Tumor Society, they always go, they cover the costs um, for attendance for s- staff and some of the board members and stuff. And they said, yeah, of course, we'll get you in under our, we'll get you in the back door, kind of like at the concert. Well, you're one of the cool people you can go. The, and then this I is mean, like the Coachella of neuro-oncology. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm in, I can get in, I'll get a badge. And then I needed travel funding to get there because flight and hotel and the Society for Participatory Medicine, mm, which if you've group. heard of them, yeah, yeah, such a great group, a professional society for clinicians, patients, researchers, advocates, everybody who's working together. They offer travel scholarships if you need to attend a conference and you have to apply. So I applied, I'm like, going to present my poster at the brain cancer conference. Will I, will you, you know, and they gave me the travel money. 
So everyone's helping me out to get there. Then I designed my poster. And as a person with a design background, I wanted to make the coolest looking poster of all time. It was going to be super simple and clean. And I sent it around to review from some neuro-oncologists. They're the ones who'd be the audience. So like, where's all the information? Where's the data? Where's the intro methods, yes. results, conclusion, <laughs> and, and three tables. It's so boring. I wanted just a big block of color with the statement, like the finding, <laughs> and then maybe a little of this, that, and the other thing. And the, But the audience, which would be these professionals, were like, we need to see it in this way we're used to. And you don't design something for yourself to feel cool. <laughs> I mean, you want to, but I knew my audience was not just me and Banku and it's these other people. So ultimately- the You have poster, to design for the geeks at the science fair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I did that. I think it looks, and I, I can sh- send you a link for your show notes. Yes, yes. Ultimately, the poster designed by me so I feel like the use of color was good. There's some photographs. Yeah. Anyway, and so we, I did the poster and I remember going into the, the conference area for poster sessions where it's just aisles of posters. And I was so nervous just hanging up my posters with the pins and feeling like everyone else here is trying to cure brain cancer, or inventing a new surgery. And I'm standing there saying, my friend, my other fellow patients on Twitter, we did this whole conversation about quality of life. We did a qualitative analysis of what that means to us and compared it with the clinicians and da, 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 da. And that, that made it to the conference and that it got a lot of attention and people came by and it was a great experience. That's so cool. I mean, we need to see so much more of that. It's amazing. I love it. And we wrote the paper and published the paper in uh, Neuro-Oncology Practice, which is one of the big neuro-oncology journals. So that was neat out too. And you're you're like literally a rock star because you're funded by the Patient Center Outcome Research Institute, which is a big federal institute. Mm -hmm. It's no joke. So congrats on that. That's that's amazing. I can't believe someone read the proposal and agreed to, to fund me. I mean, I do get it, but it's like, it's pretty neat. So you are a, a researcher and a patient researcher, if you want to use that uh, qualifier, but yeah, I consider I like you it. just a researcher and you are thinking about redesigning clinical trials to improve enrollment. Can you talk about that work? Like what's the problem there and what are you trying to do about that? Yeah. I, I don't know if clinical trials specifically is the main focus, but inspired by an experience I had just trying to enroll in a study. So I live in Northern California in Sacramento state capital and research is being done everywhere. It's not all being done in Sacramento. And as a person living with a specific diagnosis, it's a grade two astrocytoma, Cancers, by the way, are becoming more niche. There's biomarkers. It's no longer just what you see under a microscope. It's a whole bunch of other details and properties. So living There's with so like- much information out there, like more about this space than I do because yeah. I'm an emergency physician. So you are an expert in brain cancer. I am not. Yeah. Yeah. So grade two astrocytoma with the IDH1 mutation, recurrent diagnosed at this time, had this treatment, makes me only available for certain studies. And there, there was this study being done at Yale where I qualified and I didn't need to, you know, have surgery or take any treatment, but just, it was participating in a 
a database of people with my diagnosis and to track me over time. I wanted to participate and to get my records to send to these researchers was such a complicated process, numerous hoops to jump. I tracked all of the time I spent trying to get my records to participate in the trial. And I eventually ended up meeting this researcher at one of those brain cancer conferences. And he said, you're the principal investigator of the study that took me forever. I said, I've done presentations about your study, about how hard it is and how, gosh, if I had access to my information, it would be so much easier. And she's like, well, how do we make it easier? I didn't realize it was so hard. I'm like, how many people are in your study? <laughs> because you would, not that many, because it is really hard. And if you're not me, you might lose interest in enrolling yeah. in the study. So she's- It puts a burden on the patient to go, go right. hey, you want to enroll in the study? You need to bring all this stuff to it. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if somebody, I'm doing very well, not everyone with brain cancer is doing well. Yeah. And then it falls in the, the hands of their family members and they've got things to handle. So you need a lot of healthy privilege to mm -hmm. really attack a, a study. So anyway, this a researcher, Dr. Elizabeth Klaus said, what can I do to make this better? And so I shared with her some of my ideas. And about six months later, she reached out and said, I'm applying for an NIH grant. And one component of this NIH grant says, patient engagement, will you be on my advisory board? And I said, no, but I'll be an investigator on your project. I love that. You know, how would we design patient engagement throughout engagement around the process? What platform can we use a platform? How do we make it easier for them? How do you message this to all the patients out there I, so they understand? How do you get their I, information back to them? Yeah. I, I just want to emphasize that point. Like for those listening, it may just sound nuanced. Like what is the difference between a patient advisory board for research mm -hmm. study versus being a co-investigator? And why is that important? Are you saying it hypothetically? You want no, me to do it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like, because it's because people listening might think, for those who aren't involved in research, they go, "Oh, advisory board, that sounds cool." And what's the difference between that and saying that you're a co-investigator on the study? Right. Why? Why was that important to you? It was important to me. Well, I'd say a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have been as brazen to suggest that, but I was coming out of a couple of years of being funded by PCORI and doing the quality of life and brain cancer stuff and having done the poster and published the paper and yeah. really starting to build up my understanding and skills. So when Dr. Klaus reached out to me saying, will you be on the advisory board so I can check the engagement box on the NIH yeah. grant? I was like, and I, I love Dr. Klaus and I know she and I know each other so much more now, a couple of years later, I remember thinking, I am so much more than one. What does advisor mean to you? Mm -hmm. Traditionally to researchers, advisors mean people sign letters of support and they rubber stamp things. And that's not what I'm interested in doing. And I have more to bring to the table. And having done the other work, I knew a thing or two about engaging and bringing real patients to the table as part of the investigator group to really weigh in on and design the recruitment process, the ongoing communication process with those who are participating in the study. Because oftentimes people, individuals, patients, if we're enrolled in a study, we fill out a whole bunch of paperwork and then our information goes away and we never hear back from the researcher. We have no idea if anything was done with it. Mm -hmm. And if people can really see this is what happened after you participated in the study. By the way, we found these results and we're giving them back to you 
so you can make more informed decisions or you can feel good about you did this and here's how you helped us that could be so much more meaningful to both. Yeah. So, so so I wanted to be an investigator because if I was going to spend time on this project I also wanted to make sure I was paid for yeah. spending some time on the totally. project. So Dr. Klaus and others and I, as we continue working on this thing, it's called the low-grade glioma registry. What's so cool is we're developing an actual advisory panel of patients, which I said it's something I didn't want to do, but it's still something is necessary. And we have designed a full payment process to make sure those mm. patients who are participating are funded for their time. We're designing it so that way we're not overusing their time. We want to make sure the sessions where we have with them are ideating and like they can see what's happening mm. and they really know that their input is basically setting the trajectory of everything we're doing. That is amazing. And how many patients are actually co-investigators on, on research ever? studies? More and more. I'm definitely not the only, I mean, there's patients who are principal investigators on mm -hmm. projects. Somebody you probably know, Dana Lewis yeah. in the type one diabetes community and anyone who doesn't know her. Well, one, you should interview her if you have. Yes. Heard. Okay. No, I got it. Yes. She's on my list. <laughs> she's the best. She is, look her up, Dana Lewis, leading her own projects, lead author on many papers. So you look her up on Google Scholar as far as influential researchers, and she's got this high score. And she's a patient who's hacking how to deliver insulin in a more mm -hmm. efficient way that improves quality of care for people living with diabetes. I want to switch gears a bit. I was reading your blog, and you have a post there talking about you searching for a doctor, a new doctor, because yeah. I think with your insurance had switched mm -hmm. and then it's a big thing to do. It's a pain in the butt to find a new doctor in a different system. And this was, I think you had a lot of paper medical records maybe at that time. And I thought it'd be interesting for listeners for you to talk about that experience and sure. maybe what we can learn about your journey, because it's hard if you're not in the medical field yeah. to find a good doctor that you resonate with or who you think can manage your care. It, it's a really hard thing to do. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So there's so many angles to this. Well, one, so I, everyone receiving care around the country, there's many different health systems. Some are larger and smaller here in Northern California from my brain cancer diagnosis for about eight years. I was within Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. Kaiser is huge millions of patients. They're in Northern California, Southern California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, and Georgia. And then each of these regions kind of have different EHRs. Anyway, that's my open notes, you know, yeah. different EHRs. They don't all talk to each other, but <laughs> is huge, great health system, but they're everything. They're the provider, the payer provider, and they're kind of siloed. And I got great care at Kaiser probably at, in early diagnosis because the referrals happen so fast. They're mm -hmm. just one big network. Clearly I got great care there because I'm still alive. And, but my husband, Brett, eight years after diagnosis was offered a great new job. And because of the way healthcare is designed in this country, our health insurance plans are tied to our jobs, which is just so weird. Like, Huge design flaw that we're yes, still paying the price for. Absolutely. Great way to put it. And, and we wanted him to take the job, but this new job out of the options they offered Kaiser was not an option. 
So I had to leave my healthcare team and I was nervous about this, but I also at that point was feeling very confident, like, oh, I'm this great patient. I can easily pick a new team and I'll just transfer my records because again, Kaiser is its own silo so that records don't go to all of these different health systems. So I went through the process of asking for my medical records to transfer to where I was going to receive care. And what was interesting is Kaiser and where I was going, UCSF, are both on Epic, the same electronic health record platform, but they don't talk to each other. And so I went to medical records. I asked for a copy of my records. They said, do you want paper? I said, how much would it be on paper? They're all, well, your record is 4,839 pages and that 15 cents per page, that's going to be $725. Oh my gosh. What? (laughs) So I went with digital copy of my records, which each of the discs they put these records on are cost $15 for DVDs. And who has a DVD drive? I know. This current computer does not have one. But I stuck one into like a disk drive reader thing. And I was looking at this PDF file that was my record over eight years. And it was, and we could, I could talk about it forever, but just so amazing to me how much was not in the patient portal, but was mm. actually in the full record. And that's where I ended up reading my doctor's notes for the first time, inpatient, emergency, outpatient, all of it. And it was, did something surprise you about that? There, did you find anything that were like, what? I didn't yeah. know that. Well, from the ambulatory care side, just the visits with my, with my neuro-oncologist, regular visits, it was so fun to see how they were using my own words in the note, quoting actual things I said. I found meaningful things, touching things, and also funny things. Like there, uh, And I've learned if a doctor quotes you in the record, there's something about the way you say that is a clue a reminder to that doctor or maybe to others who are providing your care a bit about your personality or to really express your certain wishes. For example, when we found the tumor, I was still in the ED. They were transferring me to being in the wards before to set up for brain surgery. And they said, you're going to be scheduled for surgery because there's something in your brain. And they used my own words and said, patient states wants to shave head anyway, but couldn't because she has a real job. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> real job because I was interested in having a mohawk and going back to being punk rock Liz but Liz at the time didn't feel comfortable doing that so apparently I was like cool surgery shape <laughs> I don't know so there was fun stuff in there anyway that's fascinating that's fascinating how, record, how we yeah. do that yeah. yeah there was more to this question oh and the the search for finding uh, yeah. a yes. doctor like yeah that's so hard to do. It's and especially with such a serious diagnosis that you yeah. got and the stress of leaving your current system where you felt like you were having good care. I'm like, I need to get as yeah. good care or not, if not better care. And how do you find that physician? The search for a physician I, at, at that point, when I needed to make these changes, it was eight years after diagnosis. And now I'm kind of leaning into the patient advocacy world learning a lot of things. It was about six months before getting this PCORI grant. So I'm clearly on this path of advocacy and I decided to take it really seriously. So I wanted a badass primary care doctor. I was inspired by people like ePatient Dave and Danny Sands at the Beth Israel, who they were part of the original Open Notes pilot. And then they've got this dynamic doctor-patient relationship. And I thought, could I recreate that? Could I get find my Danny Sands? <laughs> Who's the Danny Sands? My patient Dave. So I wrote a job description for 
my doctor and posted on LinkedIn thinking maybe there would be a doctor who would think I was cool. And it said, rockstar patient seeking doctor to form all-star supergroup was the headline. I, and, and explain, you're interested in patient outcomes research institute. Maybe you've been to medicine X, you've read this book and let's be, you'll be my doctor. No one responded, <laughs> but I had, <laughs> I had people who commented like, you should reach out to this person or reach out to that person. Mm -hmm. And eventually one of the people recommended to me did not become my doctor because they already had a full panel of patients, but I work with this person today in my work with open notes here in Sacramento. So I was Amazing. like, you almost became my doctor, but now we get to work together. So kind of neat. It sounded like you're, or you're almost like forming your own band. Yeah. That was part of the feeling of like, let's pull all the cool people together. <laughs> so let's see. Oh my gosh. We are like out of time and I have like so many more questions, but um, maybe the last one is what are you currently working on right now? And then Ugh. we'll end it there. Okay. Currently working on, this is like a new concept I'm still going through, but in the last four years of working with open notes, and now everyone has access to their notes and we'll continue to study in all these interesting ways, blah, 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 blah. I've worked a lot with chief medical information officers in the hospital, the CMIO position. They're essentially usually a doctor who for, works on the electronic health record and sometimes patient portal stuff and work on workflow and roll out new technologies. They're cool. They're like the super geeks of healthcare yeah. systems. Love the CMIO role. Like I really identify with them from like the technology, the web stuff. And now with this new role and the April 5th thing that just happened, patients will have access to more information than ever before. And the design of how that information is rolled out through these portals is chaotic and wild. Plus, this rule means people have access to the information, which they can share in any way that they want. Mm. They have control. I think there's a need for someone in healthcare at the hospital, whatever, who is responsible for patient workflow and what that looks like and working with the advisory councils. And, and they don't have to be a physician. They don't have to be a patient first, but focuses solely on that. And yeah. because I think just like clinician workflow and it can feel overwhelming and the number of tasks, I think it could be overwhelming to these individuals. And also we need to figure out more around digital health literacy. What if you have diabetes, you learn how to manage A1C. All of us need to understand how to manage all of this health information that's coming our way. Not from a paternalistic perspective, but how do we design this process so people are more informed, stay engaged, stay curious and can make better healthcare decisions. Oh, and I'm calling that. that the chief patient information officer. And I, I hope to be the it. first. I love it. I love that. That's a great way to end. Thank, thank you for your advocacy, your work. It's a real honor to have you here and connect with you again, Liz. Thank you. And I hope to interview you sometime about how it's going, having your notes read in the ED. That was Liz Salmi, and joining me now is the producer of Design Lab, Rob Puglisi. What is up, Rob? Hello. We are such fans of Liz. She is like literally a rock star. Literally. Right? Literally a rock star. <laughs> By all definitions. I thought it was so cool that she played as a drummer in a punk rock band and how that experience of her being in a rock band, she applied those principles to being a patient researcher, advocate, and design transparency in healthcare. I know. I want to. I want to. I want to get a band together around my care. <laughs> yeah, I love that. She was like, "Yeah, I put out an advertisement there to find a doctor." I mean, Freaking I've brilliant. never heard of that before. Never. Have you done that? 
No, you just kind of like hope that you pick somebody good from the list of people that your insurance covers. She is so in- inspiring. Yeah, she thinks so differently about what these relationships mean. I mean, really, it's really transformative, really, the way she's thinking. And I can't wait to see this world that she's dreamed up come into reality. But this is big news. What went out on Monday that all these records, imaging results, data, it's going to be totally open to patients. You're going to be able to go on there. You have any concerns about about that? Like, it's going to be a good thing overall, but there are going to be some like major hiccups. Somebody's going to have to figure out how to make this information digestible right and accessible to people because it's a lot it's a lot of information for somebody who spent their whole career weeding through it to understand it could be scary too right it can be anytime you get like these results that are outside of like the normal range people are going to freak out they're like whoa my hemoglobin is like 11.2 it should be 12 Am I going to die? Am Even I though anemic? That kind of I need stuff, a blood transfusion? Like those types of things are, are already kind of available. I think what's really going to be different is these narratives that different caregivers write into the into the chart that you're not used to seeing. Have you, do you have have you been accessing your own medical records? And so I, so I just opened my so I just opened my health record and I looked. I was like, can I see my notes now? And I can't. Yeah, right now all I can see are these things called after visit summaries, like uh-huh. ABS, which is just like a, a very basic summary of what happened. So I'm really curious how health systems are really gonna make this information accessible to people because I want to see it. Hmm. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what quotes the doctor has for you. Yeah, I know. It would be like, I want to eat donuts, quote. (laughs) (laughs) Endocrinologist says, I swear, quote, unquote, I swear I'm trying to lose weight. Um, But no, like you really can't understate the importance of this law that literally went into effect yesterday. If you look at the history, you know, this goes back to the 70s where laws first, first started getting passed about this concept of sharing medical records with people right before that it was kind of like that was privileged information for the physician only then then you know came the advent of the electronic health record and now there was this new problem that nobody was sharing information there was all you know stuck in silos what do you think about how much garbage there is in medical records right we have these dot phrases in our EHR, for, for those of you who don't know that in order to make the workflow easier, there's templated scripts of records so we could check off the review of systems and all this other stuff. And so much of the medical records is a duplication of garbage. And so how is a patient who may not have that medical sophistication in deciphering this code that doctors have to understand what the heck is going on to decipher through this sea of information. Yeah, and I think that's the next step. And that's where design is going to come in. How can we not just make the information available, but make it actionable and useful and legible to different people? Because it, it's not any better for, for providers. Like most of my job was reading other you know, doctor's notes and things like that when you know, working as a pharmacist. And I just learned like, okay, I just got to look for the blue words because yeah. those are the words that were actually typed in by a human. Like the 99% of the other stuff in there was just dropped in by a computer. It means nothing. It's probably going to open up this huge industry, right? Of startups in the digital health space because there's going to be this need to translate all this data 
into a way that is digestible yeah. for it, multiple different users. It makes me think of our previous guest, Katie McCurdy, and the work that she mm-hmm. does, you know, yeah. making these infographics. Now everybody's going to have access to that level of da- data. Yeah, like why does it necessarily just have to be words? Can, mm-hmm. can some of the data be represented through figures and charts that are beautifully designed? So curious to see what that's going to look like in the future. Good episode. Love, Liz. I'm so excited that you joined us. Yeah, this one was so good. So much to dig into here. You can find Liz Salmi on both Instagram and Twitter. Her handle is at the Liz Army. And that's also her website, thelizarmy.com. Check it out. It's so cool. And reach out to us on social media. My Twitter handle is at Bonku. My Instagram is at drbonku. Design Lab was produced by the one and only Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.